Every time um, something happens in the Holy Land, uh, Israel, um, in that region, our, our senses for the coming of the Lord uh, get heightened, right? We begin to, begin to wonder and th- see things and ask questions, and, and many people are alarmed in this season, and um, in, in all of that, we read this week <laughs> about the coming of the Lord. And in Second, First Thessalonians, and in Second Thessalonians, and so we're in this reading plan, and we're going preaching through the reading plan. And I had had a different passage picked out to preach this week. It was out of Corinthians, but um, but as I was reading that in the daily reading, I just felt the Lord say, "This is this is change your plans," <laughs> and um, and so we pivoted. I thought it was timely, as all of our hearts are so tender to what's going on, to be talking about the coming of the Lord, the end times, um, things of that nature, and it's right there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to give you um, a little context before we jump in. We'll read the passage. Um, We're going to be in verses 1 through 12, and Paul wrote this shortly after he wrote 1 Thessalonians, so this is the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, and so this would be around 51 or so A.D., and um, it's his second letter to them to clarify some uh, teaching about Christ's return. Uh, he had wrote, wrote about that, but then there was some confusion that happened, and so he, he writes back to clarify some things, and he also warns against idleness in this book, and And what had happened was um, the early church was so convinced that Christ was going to return in their lifetime that that some of them just quit working. And they just said, hey, if Christ is going to return, why would I go to to school? Why would I go to to work? I would just sit around and long and wait, and and I'll be waiting. I'll be ready. Like, why do anything in the world? And so many of them, uh, and that's happened in, in more modern history, people predicting the end, and so everybody quits their jobs and sells their stuff and goes on a hill and looks for the coming of Christ, and it doesn't happen. But um, anyways, so Paul writes to them uh, because some of them began to mooch off of others, and then the others were getting irritated that these people were mooching, and it was creating conflict. And so Paul writes and says, hey, um, you, need to, you need to work. <laughs> Get ready for Christ's return, uh, plan for Christ's return, but also go to work and provide for yourself and for your family. And he actually says in this, he says, he who's not willing to work um, should not eat. Oh, like strong words. He should not, he's not willing to work, should not eat. That's Nathan's favorite verse. I saw him say amen under his breath right there. Um, that's in uh, chapter 3, verse 10. But um, so this is what he's, he's kind of he's getting at. So that's where we find ourselves. Let's read uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse uh, 1 through 12, and then we will pray and unpack it. Are you ready? All right. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let, one, um, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. 
who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and objects objects of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Let us uh, pray again together. Father, uh, I just ask as we study your word together that you'd give us understanding Give us clarity, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see and give us grace and um, open-mindedness. And Lord, give us, just help us to rightly divide the word of truth today. Uh, I pray that you'd guide me in my words and my speech that would clearly proclaim what you have said and nothing more. Uh, Lord, um, prepare us for your return. Help us to long and love uh, your return. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So um, uh, I just got to start by saying uh, you might disagree with what I'm going to say in this sermon. Very likely, very likely that you will disagree with some things that I say in this sermon. Good, godly people have come to different conclusions when it comes to eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times and the coming of the Lord. So intelligent, smart, uh, godly, Bible-saturated people have come to different conclusions about this. And so just note that this is an in-house debate, not an outside debate. Uh, There are things, if you can think about it in Christianity and theology, that there are national borders and state borders, national borders, you have, you have guards and, and uh, rules, and there's, you know, th- there are clear distinctions usually between one nation and another, some hard distinctions between cultures and all those things. But then when you come to state borders, there's still some differences between, but we're all part of the one nation. And so uh, there are some national borders in Christianity, like the uh, virgin birth and the deity of Christ and salvation by grace through faith. And those things are national borders. You're not a Christian if you don't believe these things. But then within that nation are state borders, some differences, some distinctions. And we can uh, disagree and still be all part of God's family. And so I would like uh, to just... Uh, encourage you to know this is not essential for salvation. I ask you to consider carefully what I say, but know that if we disagree, we can still love one another. Uh, We can still go to church and worship with one another. We can still uh, serve with one another, and we can even still be close friends, okay? And so we can sit at the family table and discuss these things, but no, you don't have to get mad 
we can just agree to disagree about some things, but I, I just pray that this message drives you into the scriptures to wrestle with what is true. And then also just know this is going to be more of a Bible study than a sermon, okay? So we're going to look at what the Bible says about some things. And um, so less preachy, more Bible study. Are you ready to dive in? The first idea is this, that when the end of the world seems near, do not be alarmed. When the world seems near, do not be alarmed. Let's go back to verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and us being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter that seems to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so the problem that he is dealing with, that he's addressing with them, is that they have received some false teaching about Christ's coming. Uh, it seems like they thought it already happened. In the sense of if you've ever, like your whole family just went outside for some reason, you come out of the bedroom and everybody's gone, you're like, have they been raptured? You know, the, did I miss it? Where were the trumpets, you know? And in that sense... The Thessalonica, the church of Thessalonica, they were thought, we missed it. Had the day already come? How could they have, how could they have thought that? Um, look at verse, uh, uh, if we flip back a, a page to uh, 1 Thessalonians, and we look at chapter 5, the first five verses say this. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night and of the darkness. So they were most likely uh, taught that the thief in the night, um, since because it's like a thief in the night, that they might have missed it. Whoa, what, what could, could we have missed this thing? Because he said it's going to be like a secret thing, like happens a thief in the night. I want to point out a couple things about this. A thief in the night is meant to communicate not secret, but sudden. It's not secret, but it's sudden. And then, and secondly, notice in the text, he's, it, the thief in the night experience is for unbelievers. He says, for those who are perishing unbelievers, it'll be like a thief in the night. But in verse 4, he says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And so he's like, yeah, unbelievers, they're going to be like, what happened? But you're going to see it coming as a believer. I mean, you're going to see the signs. You're going to expect it. You're going to see it. He says, uh, do not let anyone, back to, well, another just point out while we're in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he says this will be like labor pains for them and uh, like pregnant birthing pains. And what happens in labor pains, uh, I've witnessed my wife uh, give birth to three children, but um, what happens is labor pains come in increasing intensity and frequency. And so what he's saying is towards the end, there's going to be an increase of um, frequency of these end time events and intensity. Intensity. It seems like it's going to get worse and worse until Christ returns. So back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he says, um, 
Uh, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It seems like they might have um, a spirit. So maybe somebody got a prophetic word of some sort for the church at Thessalonica or, um, or a spoken word. Some preacher came in and preached a message about this, that you'd miss the day of the Lord, or, or a letter. So somebody even brought a letter and said, look, Paul wrote us a letter, and this is what he says about it when he really didn't do that. Some, there's these forms of communication that are deceiving the people to think that Christ had already Come And we experience the same thing because every time there is a major conflict, especially in the Middle East, there are a handful of authors who somehow immediately publish books about that event. You wonder how how they get uh, things off so quickly um, uh, to the publisher uh, about these current events and how they fulfill specific end times prophecies. And I, I just want you to be careful with the books you read and the preachers you listen to and the articles you consume, I hope that you can see that throughout their ministry, if you'll call it that, they've predicted a lot of things that didn't happen. And so let's just be cautious in how we consume some of these things who are so quickly to predict that these things are fulfillments of certain things and then they just forget that they made those predictions later when they wrote the new book. Okay, sorry, get off my... Soapbox, I guess. But there are many deceivers out there seeking to stir up fear because fear sells books. So what is their response to all this? They've been deceived. They've heard this teaching. They read the book about it. Uh, Christ already came, you know, left behind. They read it. And then, and then this is their response. Quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, he says. So quickly shaken is, is a, a, a mental disruption. Alarmed might be considered uh, an emotional disruption. This really affects you. This really disturbs you. And we can look back at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is kind of a parallel passage about the coming of the Lord and end times. In Matthew chapter 24... Uh, we'll be flipping there a few times in our study today. In verse 4 through 6, he says, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. They're being led astray in Thessalonica. It's already happening. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. We're hearing that right now. See that you are not alarmed, for this must Take place. But the end is not yet, he says. So <clears throat> he says, do not be alarmed. Do not be quickly shaken in mind. These things should take place. Now, now it's not really the response of most Christians right now, is it? To not be alarmed. We, we hear the wars and rumors of wars and we go, ah! But the very next thing he says after that statement is, do not be alarmed. That when, when we see wars and rumors of wars, we should say, it's okay. It's going to be all right. Now, now I, I have to give it. Why, why throughout church history have people been so eager to um, predict maybe certain days or years or events that are going to lead to the imminent coming of Christ? How come people are so eager to make these type of judgments? 
And uh, I think part of it is that as Christians who, who we are um, betrothed to a bridegroom, we long for that day when we're united with him. And so there's this eagerness to see him. It's kind of like whenever, um, whenever I, we have these twin boys, they're two and a half now, and whenever I'm watching them and uh, their mother is out, you know, doing some things or whatever, when, every time they hear an unusual noise, they run right to the door and say, Mommy's home! Mommy's home! Mommy's home! And they start looking through the door and they're so excited. I'm like, no, it's, it's, she's not home. And then... A few minutes, you know, a little while later, something else happens. They, mommy's home, mommy's home. They run right to the door. They look to the door and they're excited and they're thrilled. And they're seeing, they're, they're, they're hearing it. They're looking for it. They're seeing her return everywhere. It's because they're excited to be reunited with their mother. That is a, that's, that's the attitude we should have. We should have a sense of longing and expectancy for Christ's return. But in my experience, in the church, that doesn't seem to be the common response. I have seen, seen that spot response from time to time from people, and it's unique. It's an anomaly. Because most of the time, people are scared. The dominant sentiment among Christians is fear. And, and it ought not be so. And so we think the world's falling apart, so we go prepare for the end times and get ready for Armageddon like you're supposed to personally show up with the weaponry to fight Armageddon. We should be prepared, but we should not be alarmed. What is the solution to this fear, to this alarm? Well, if he says do not be quickly shaken in mind, then maybe the solution would be slow, patient, careful consideration of end times teaching. Whenever something happens that raises our antenna for end times, maybe we should say, okay, instead of just reacting, I'm going to have some slow, careful, prayerful consideration of what's happening in the world, how it relates to Christ's return. Do not be, your thinking needs to be right. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, you, by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's like, trans, transform your mind, your thinking wrong. You need to think rightly about these things so that you'll be able to judge rightly about what God is doing. 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 14.20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. It's like it's a thinking Thinking issue. Second Timothy 2.7 says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And in Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, where he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so when things happen, we shouldn't check our mind off at the door and say, I'm just by, by faith believe that Christ is coming. We should carefully consider and slow down Consider these things carefully, and so we will do that today. Two major views about Christ's return. Two major views about Christ's return. The first one is this, or the day of the Lord. The first one is a pre-tribulation rapture. A pre-tribulation rapture, as it is called, because they believe that the, you'll be, the church will be raptured pre, before the great tribulation as described in Revelation. Christians, the, the, This view says Christians are raptured out of the world, 
Uh, rapture is just the Latin uh, transliteration for caught up. If we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 17, and, uh, he says, Then who, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So he's, that word caught up there in the Latin is, a, is what we transliterate as rapture. So there's nothing wrong with that word. But uh, the idea is that that catching up will happen before the tribulation, um, usually believed to be seven years of tribulation, and then the day of the Lord's judgment when Christ fully returns and uh, exercises judgment at the end of the tribulation. Now, 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 um, this sermon is not going to be geared towards poking holes in that view. Um, Many of you probably hold that view. Um, I do just want to maybe just out of this text have you consider if, if that is the case, wouldn't Paul's clarification have simply to been, we're still here, guys. The day of the Lord has not come because we're still here. So if that was the view, if that was their understanding, you think he could have clearly said, because we haven't been raptured, it hasn't happened. But he doesn't say that. He says some other things, give an indication that maybe there's a different idea. The other, the other major view, so that's pre-tribulation. The other major view is post-tribulation, that the church will endure the tribulation, but then be uh, caught up in the air with the Lord um, at the end of the tribulation at his coming. Um, let's, I want you to see this in the text. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, notice the language here. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus... So this is the return of Christ, and, and this, and us being gathered to him. So that's the rapture. So the coming of the Lord and the rapture. And he says, do not be led astray by these things. At the end of uh, verse 2, he says, um, to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he says, he, he lists these three things all talking about the same event. The coming of the Lord Jesus, the gathering of the church to him, and the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's Judgment. So that's in the text, the immediate kind of argument maybe for post-tribulation that will go through the tribulation then. The other is in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, that verse we just read, um, that when those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the air with them in the clouds to meet, that's the important word there, to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord Now, this is important because this word meet is only used twice uh, in two other places in the New Testament. And in both other places in the New Testament, um, in uh, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 6, and in Acts chapter 28, verse 15. In Matthew 25, he tells this story of this bridegroom who has gone away, and he has ten virgins at home waiting for for their wedding. When he returns, there's an alert to the the virgins. Hey, your bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. And so then they go and meet him, then to return with him for uh, for the bridegroom feast. Um, We see that in Matthew 25. But at midnight, there was a cry here in the bridegroom. Come, let us out to meet him. That's the word. In Acts chapter 28, you have the apostles who are traveling into a city. 
And whenever they get near to the city, they, the churches are alert, the, the believers are alerted in those surrounding cities. And then they all come out to meet them to then return with him into the city. Acts 28, 15, and the brothers were there. And when they heard about us, they came as, as far as Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God to, and took courage. And so we have to see that in every other context that this word is used, it's used to describe someone who's entering a place and a group of people comes out to meet them to then uh, return with them to that place. It is a welcome gathering. The same idea is what uh, Roman um, armies would do. They went out to battle. They would come back victorious, and they would camp a mile out of the city. They'd camp there with all their uh, soldiers, you know, the, their people they've taken captive, and all their loot and everything. And before they entered into the city, they would go send a delegation into the city to announce that the soldiers are back. And then they would, when they were ready, they would blow trumpets to let the city know, and everyone who was a Roman citizen or a loved one of a soldier, they would all go out to meet the army to return with them in a parade of victory. And so we have to see that this word he uses here of the catching up, the being raptured, is this idea that the church, when Christ returns, will be caught up to meet him in the air, not then to go off to heaven, but then to accompany him in triumphal victory, um, bringing judgment onto those who are in rebellion. It means a welcome gathering. Coming in verse 15 of First Thessalonians 4. Verse 15 says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Coming there, the coming of the Lord, um, mean, refers to the rapture. That, that's the context right there. The coming of the Lord will be caught up in the air with him. So in, in that passage, it refers to rapture. But in 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 8, he says, When the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In that passage, the coming of the Lord refers to his judgment on the, on the lawless one. And so we have to see it, this word in one place. It's the same event I believe he's talking about. Appearance in uh, that same passage in chapter 2, verse 8 um, he will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, refers to Christ's um, uh, judgment. But in Titus, a couple pages to your right, in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in Titus, that word appearing in that context, he's talking about are waiting to see the Lord in his coming, maybe in the rapture. And so uh, it seems like, to me, as you just plain study of the text, it seems like he's talking about the same event. One of the more convincing arguments is in uh, chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, verses 6 through 8. 
where he says, uh, because, because one of the arguments for pre-tribulation is that the church will not experience the tribulation. They will not experience this affliction of God. But in First Thessalon- 2 Thessalonians chapter, two, chapter 1, verse 6, let me repeat that because I think I got it a little muddy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief uh, to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And so what he says here is that um, you are going to experience affliction in the end days. And at Christ's return, he will give you relief of that affliction and afflict the enemies who have afflicted you. And just in that one verse, he will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. So it seems like he's talking about the same event, the judgment of the Lord and the rapture of the church all happening in the same movement. And so my belief is that the Bible only speaks of one second coming of Jesus. And at his second coming, he will gather the church, those who are dead and living, the dead will rise first. He will gather the church to himself in the sky for then us to return with the triumphal judgment of God on those in rebellion against God after the tribulation. That's a lot to take in. Here's the thing. I reserve the right to change my mind midair. Okay. So, so if it happens sooner, I'll be like, y'all are right, y'all are right. <laughs> okay, I reserve the right to change my mind midair. Okay, and... Paul then, the rest of this text, he gives some reasons uh, to why these things must occur before Christ's return. And, um, and he says, so these two things, so before Christ's return, these two things must happen. And it's the rebellion and the rebel, or the man of lawlessness. The rebellion and uh, the rebel. Um, so <clears throat> notice in both these things, verse 3, he says... Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, the the coming of Christ and his judgment, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So that day will not come, as we just described, until the rebellion and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. Notice it's the, not a, the rebellion, not a rebellion, and the man of lawlessness, not a man of lawlessness. What he's saying is, hey, throughout Throughout church history, there are going to be many rebellions. There are going to be many people who come up who act as antichrists. But this is a unique one at the very end. Uh, This is the ultimate one. This is unprecedented in how it is done. So the first thing, before Christ returns, here's the first point. The rebel is revealed. The rebel is revealed. Look at verse 3 through 9. No one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Man of lawlessness and other places, we believe this to be, be the Antichrist. We see this in Matthew chapter 24. If you want to flip back over, I told you we're going to reference that a couple of times in this, 
in this sermon. Matthew chapter 24 uh, and in verse um, 23 through 27, he says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead um, astray, if possible, even the elect. So I want you to understand, he's like, it's not possible for him to, to lead the elect astray, but if it were possible, he would. He's going to be so convincing, which means this, that the man of lawlessness is probably going to be someone you like. It's probably going to be someone who, who makes you wrestle with whether they're truly from God or not. So don't think it's going to be like the devil. He's like, ah, you know, I'm the devil. I'm here in the man of lawlessness. No, he's someone that you like and that he can deceive you and lead you astray, even if possible, even the elect, but it's not possible. So see, I have told you beforehand so that they who say to you, look, he's in the wilderness. Do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, that's another point against a secret rapture because he's saying at the coming of the Son of Man, it'll be like lightning that goes across the entire world. Everyone will see it, is what he's saying here. Everyone's going to see it. There's not going to be any doubt when Christ returns, so don't let anyone convince you that he's already come because you would have seen it with your own eyes in the sky. Okay, So Antichrist here... Um, means uh, not necessarily anti or opposed to, although that is true, but in place of or instead of. And so he is claiming to be the Christ. Uh, he is opposed to Christ, but he won't tell you that. He's going to tell you he is the Christ. First John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. First John 4.3 says, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So there's, um, there is a coming of the Antichrist, and we experience little Antichrists already. He is the one that Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins when you once walked, following the course of of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the prince of the power of the air, the manifestation of him here in the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. Now, lawlessness here is his nature. He is going to be lawless, no law. He is not going to submit to any law but himself. And uh, everyone who claims to, um, to have no God, or every, when you claim to have no God, what you're saying is you are God. If you claim to have no law, you're saying you are the law. And that's what he will be saying. But it also calls him the son of destruction. So if lawlessness was his nature, the son of destruction is his destiny. I just love that as soon as he mentions him, he includes in there his end. He's here, but not for long. It's interesting that son of destruction, though, is the only other time that phrase is used in the New Testament is whenever Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer in John 17. And he says this, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Jesus praying to the Father. 
which you have given me and guarded them, and not one of them has, has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might f- be fulfilled. And so in the same way that, that Judas betrayed and assaulted the work of Christ, sought the destruction of Christ, then the Antichrist is going to be the true Judas. He's introduced as defeated. So that is the uh, man of lawlessness. But it says that he's going to take seat in the temple of God. What does that mean? What is, which temple? What is the temple of God that he's referring to? Is he referring to a figure of speech in the sense of that he's saying uh, because he's going to claim to be God above all gods, he is putting himself in the place of God, in the temple of God. Is a figure of speech? Is he talking about the physical temple of God in Jerusalem, the one that was uh, destroyed in 70 AD, but likely one day will be uh, re-erected and restored? And so is he saying the physical Jewish temple in Jerusalem, is he going to take seat in that temple as God? Maybe. Is he talking about um, the church? Is he talking about the church? Because in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, he says, What agreement has the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ephesians 2, 19 and 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Or in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so is he talking about the temple of the church in the sense that maybe he's going to masquerade as some Christian leader and take prominence in the church of the day as so for us to many Christians look to him and be led astray as a Christian leader? I'm more inclined to bend towards that nature, although I think it could be both. Or all three, in the sense of he figuratively has placed himself in the temple of God, but then he's some Christian leader who then also persuades the Jewish and sets himself up in the physical temple. I think all three could happen. You're going to have to wrestle with that yourself because the truth is we don't know. <laughs> um, verse, let's skip down to verse 9 and 10. Um, he says... The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. It says that he will perform signs and wonders. It's important to know that these signs and wonders, they're real. This is not an illusion. This is not what we know as magic where it's sleight of hand or or misleading, or illusion. This is real signs and wonders. Um, In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 13, 
uh, verse 1 through 3, he says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, it's real. And if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, he says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. And so he says, these signs that he performs are going to be real, and they're going to be convincing. But you have to understand that signs and wonders do not necessarily validate that they're from the true God. I think oftentimes, at least in Christian, you see churches who are very successful, but they're doing things in an unbiblical manner. And you know what they're a claim is that they're in the will of God, it works. It works. Look, God's blessing it. Look, the, the, the building's full. The bank account is full. People are making professions. It works. It works is not a good test for whether it's from God. And we have to realize that. We can't just follow people because they do stuff that is supernatural. And in the end, you're going to be tempted that they're going to be so convincing. People are going to be getting healed. They're going to be having signs and wonders, things that can only be supernatural. And you're going to be tempted to follow their teaching because they seem to be validated as from God. But... Right now, it seems, in verse 6 and 8, that there's a restrainer on him. Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So it seems as though there is this restraining on this man of lawlessness which makes you say, you know, if, if the evil that we see in the world that we have witnessed this week, that um, we experience in our fallen world, if this evil that we experience is with him restrained, can you imagine uh, the wickedness that will be rampant whenever he is unrestrained? It's going to be like nothing the world has ever seen. Who is restraining him, though? Who's the restrainer? Um, uh, is it, some, some would say it's the government, because there is, um, he's lawless, and the government's job in the world is to bring order. And so the government, in its bringing of order in the world, is somehow restraining this uh, lawless one. Some would say that it's the Holy Spirit, in a way, maybe personally restraining him, or restraining him through the activity of the church. Um, some would say it's an angel. This is an angel's job. All right, your job, hold him back, okay? Until I tell you otherwise, you hold him back. And um, the answer is that uh, we don't know. Everyone's guessing. Everyone's guessing. Um, you can become fully convinced. You study it. Let everyone be convinced, fully convinced in their own mind. Study it for yourself. Come to a conclusion. I'll tell you, I don't know. And uh, in my studies, we could maybe pick one, but we're not quite certain. The point 
about it is not that you would know who the restrainer is because he could have said the Holy Spirit who's restraining him. He could have said that. And you would know. But he didn't say that, so we don't know. The point is not to identify who's restraining him, but that he is being restrained. That um, the point is that God controls the timing of these events. That he is coming not one day sooner or one day late than when God wants him to show up on the scene. So what we see in this text is that God is in control. He's in control of it all. So we have the rebel. And then secondly, we have the rebellion is rampant. Let's look at um, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this rebellion comes from people who believe the lies of the lawless one. There's a few lies that he will be, told, be telling that we see in these passages. Uh, lies about what's moral. He says there is no law. And so he will lie to you in the sense that um, you don't have to submit to any laws or rules. You, people, you don't have to obey your parents or your pastor or your police. Like you don't have to obey anybody. Um, this lawless spirit uh, motto is you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do. Now, in, in America, we have a very independent spirit. Um, and so that kind of runs through our veins, right? You can't tell me what to do. I am free. And so um, <laughs> I loved <laughs> my brother. If you ask him, you know, like, uh, hey, are you free on Friday night? He's like, it's America. I'm free every night, right? <laughs> I'm free. <clears throat> or this, don't judge me. Don't judge me. I do what I want. It's one, now, I want us to understand that it is one thing um, for the Christian in obedience to the Scriptures saying, I will not judge others. It's another thing for a professing Christian to say to others, do not judge me. That is a spirit of lawlessness. That is a spirit of there is no law but myself. No one tells me what to do. And that will be the mark of the rebellion. Again, it's already in the world, but it will be increased. The lie about what's theological. The lawless one is going to call himself God. And, uh, and so he's going to convince people that he is God above all gods. And so he's going to lie to people about what is true about God. He lies about what is valuable. In verse 10, he says, With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. So he's going to say, look, um, uh, the truth is not worth loving. The truth is worthless. What is truth? Who cares about the truth? You have your truth, I have my truth, right? Because I'm lawless. No one tells me objective truth. And so, um, so then truth is not valuable. Lies about what is pleasurable. He says um, in verse 12, in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so this is the lie. 
that um, unrighteousness is more pleasurable than truth. Ephesians 4.22 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. So our desires deceive us into thinking that unrighteousness is going to make you happier than righteousness. That unrighteousness is going to make you happier than walking in righteousness and obedience to Christ. And what you'll find is that it's a deception. That doing your own thing, finding pleasure in righteousness, it is uh, enjoyable for a season. And then it proves to be bitter in the end. And so it lies about what's pleasurable. Matthew 24 describes this event as we go back to Matthew 24, verse 9. Describes this event, says, Then uh, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away. This is the rebellion. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What we see in this text is that lawlessness is selfish. That love vanishes. Betrayal and hatred increase. We see in verse 9 of Matthew 24 that there will be hatred from outside. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So he's like, there's going to be hatred from outside. Everybody around the world is going to hate you Christians. He says, but there will be hatred from inside, verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So Christians will betray Christians. Christians will hate Christians. It'll be a great divide. And, um, but what he says is those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who endure to the end will be saved. So before Christ returns, because... I believe the Bible teaches that the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church, and his bringing down judgment on the unbelieving world and the devil is all the same event. It's going to happen in one swift moment. Um, Before that takes place, we will see the rebellion being rampant. It's going to be unprecedented everywhere. Has the whole world turned against God? Yes. And the rebel will be revealed. There will be a person who manifests this lawlessness and sets himself up as God. And and again, you have to understand, the secretness, the thief in the night, that's for unbelievers. They're not going to see it coming. They're deceived. They're blind to it. But the church, it's not going to come on you so suddenly. You're going to be able to see it. You're going to be able to point to it. You're going to be able to say, it's getting near. It's getting near. It's almost time. Here it comes. And so knowing this, how do I prepare for Christ's return? How do I prepare for Christ's return? Three things, and then we'll close. First is love the truth and be saved. That's what he says right there in Second uh, Thessalonians um, verse 
Verse 10, and with all wickedness, while with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and uh, be saved. Um, So if that's a a mark of someone who is uh, deceived, then those of us who are um, wanting to prepare for this day, we should love the truth. The truth um, here in context is most likely the gospel, the truth of the gospel, but all truth. We should love the truth of God and be saved. And so if you are not in Christ, you're not ready for this day. If you're not saved, it's going to come on you. You're not going to, you're not going to see it happen. It's going to come on you, and it's going to be too late. And so I, my biggest encouragement to you, if you're not in Christ, let today be the day where you love the truth, where you surrender to Christ, where you um, are saved in the Lord, and so you don't have to be alarmed. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to, when you see the wars and rumors of wars, your uh, reaction does not have to be that of anxiety. It can be that of anticipation for Christ's return. Um, we don't love the truth naturally. It doesn't happen in our own strength. It's a supernatural act from God on our behalf. And this requires not just to love the truth. It means not just a mental persuasion that something is true. It is an effectual persuasion that it's better. It's not just I believe this thing to be true and so I made a confession because, yeah, I mentally believe it's my heart has been changed. I, I long, I love it. It's, it's, I believe that it's better. I believe that walking with Jesus is better. He's not causing me to miss out on anything. It's so much better to know and love the Lord. One of the things I pray for my children is not just that God would save them. I pray that, yes. I pray that God that they would treasure you. That they would treasure you. That they would see you as better. That they'd love you and enjoy you and delight in you. Um, uh, We read in Deuteronomy as he talks about these people who uh, could deceive you through signs and wonders and dreams and stuff. But he says, you shall not listen to the words, Deuteronomy 13.3, not listen to the words of the prophet or dreamer For the Lord your God is testing you. What is he testing? To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the tribulation for the unbelieving world is a judgment. For the believing Christian, it's a testing. Do you love the truth? It's hard to be deceived by falsehood when you love the truth. I don't just know it. I love it. It's hard to pull me away from it because I love it. All right, secondly, stand firm and endure to the end. Stand firm and endure to the end. We actually see that in the following passage, following passage in chapter 2 of Thessalonians, verse 13 through 17. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see it? He's like, don't deny the truth. Believe and love it. Verse 14, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God of our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. He says, stand firm. Stand firm. Matthew 24, 13, Jesus says, 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You don't have to endure what you enjoy. You have to endure what is difficult, and it's going to get difficult. And so stand firm. Do not be led astray. The goal of this test is to glorify God. We see this in 1 Peter um, 4.16, where he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It's going to get hard. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through the tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is going to be glorified in your endurance to the end. So entrust your souls to God. Um, lastly, live, look, and long for his return. So I'm going to live for his return. I'm going to look for his return, and I'm going to long for his return. So I, I don't want you to get the idea that we should just uh, say, like some people have said, uh, even in the first century church, some people said, look, he's not coming. He's not coming. I don't have to worry. He's not coming. Look, it's not going to happen. That not, should not be our attitude. We should look for it. And long for it, like I described my kids longing for their mom to return and looking for it and being excited for it. That should be our attitude. And we should live in light of it because we know that he is our redeemer and our rescuer. Here's one of the greatest verses in this whole passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. Look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of of his coming. He's like, look, the man of lawlessness is on the scene. Bang! Then he's dead. Every time he mentions the man of lawlessness, like in the same verse, mentions his death. That he, he gets an hour. He gets a bit of time and that's it. And then it's over. He's dead as soon as he's on the scene. He will kill with the breath of his mouth, kill, he'll end his life. And he say that he'll bring to nothing by his appearance. He will end his effectiveness. Sometimes people can, their wickedness can still be effective after they're dead. Not this guy. When Christ returns, he will put an end, bring him to nothing like he never happened. His glory is coming. Titus 2, 13 and 14, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let us live in a way that we can say with sincerity what John ends the book of Revelation with second to last verse in the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us long 
for his coming. Let us live for his coming. The the purpose of the study of end times and the coming of the Lord is not certainty. It's not knowing the specific day or the time or the specific prophecies that are being fulfilled. The purpose is preparation. Are you prepared for Christ's return? Live ready for his coming. Father in heaven, I thank you for our time in your word, and I thank you that you give um, so much um, warning and preparation so that we do not have to be surprised as unbelievers are, that we don't have to be blindsided by uh, the end, but that we can see it coming. And so, Lord, I pray that everything that's happening in the world would not stir in us fear, for you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, and that perfect love casts out fear. And so I just thank you that um, when the world is shaken, we can be standing firm on the solid foundation of the rock of Christ. And, um, And that although it gets hard, that you will cause us to endure to the end, that we will be experience relief of our affliction and that you will bring vengeance on all those who have opposed you throughout the millennia. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would cause us to live in preparation for your coming. We'd long for it, that we'd love it. Comfort those who are experiencing difficulty and and disruption in their minds and in their hearts. Give peace to us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.